Hi, my name is Natalie Orofici, and I'm delighted to welcome you to the Women in Scripture podcast. This podcast has been inspired by the God Who Speaks campaign. I will be inviting lots of different women to come and speak about the women in the Bible who inspire them and who speak to their hearts today. So for this episode, I'm delighted to have with me Angela Cosley. Now, Angela, would you like to introduce yourself to the listeners and tell them which woman you've chosen? Sure. Thanks, Natalie. So, uh, yeah, my name's Dr. Angela Costi. I'm a scripture scholar. I currently teach at St. Mary's Oscott, so the seminary. Um, I teach biblical Greek and I also teach wisdom literature. So I'm kind of in between the Old and New Testaments. Um, I, you know, I have a foot in both camps. Started my theological training back at Durham. Uh, went on to do my master's in Jewish studies at Mansfield College, Oxford. And then I finished off with my PhD at Maynooth. So, uh, that's my background. Uh, very much scripture has been my focus in all those studies. And uh, the woman I've chosen today is Miriam in the Old Testament. Uh, at this point, I should probably mention something. Um, so I'm actually a Hebrew Catholic, which means I'm a Jew in the church. We go by a few names. Sometimes people call us kosher Catholics, a bit of a misnomer because most of us aren't actually keeping kosher. Um, but essentially, we're, we're faithful Catholics. We submit completely to the magisterium, but we retain to some varying degrees our Jewish identity. Now, as Jews, uh, we have Hebrew names. And in Hebrew, I also go by Miriam. Okay. Uh, Mary is my middle name and Maria is my confirmation name. And as I want to explain or will explain as we go along, all those names are basically the same. And this is really quite important for Christians to understand when we consider Miriam in the Old Testament. Basically, then she's a character that's really close to my heart. Uh, I think she has real value, not only in terms of her being a key woman in the Old Testament, but also how she relates to the New Testament. Now, the other reason I mention this is because I sometimes might use the Hebrew names for the biblical characters, and I just want to kind of outline some of those. So I might say Moshe instead of Moses. I'll probably call God Hashem at some point. That's just how I think of him. And uh, if I say Yeshua, well, that's that's Jesus. So <laughs> just in case anybody's wondering who on earth I'm actually talking about. But I hope that you'll allow me these eccentricities because in telling you her story, I actually want to draw on extra biblical traditions from Judaism. And I hope that some of those will help her explain her significance in a little bit more detail as we go along. Well, I'm very excited that you will explore this Judaism in the Old Testament with us. We look forward to hearing these extra terms that you will use. Can you tell us a little bit about Miriam, who exactly she is and why you've chosen her? Yeah, sure. So Miriam is basically uh, Moshe or Moses um, and Aaron's sister in the book of Exodus. Now, she's actually their kind of female counterpart in a way because she also leads the Israelites out of Egypt. I think she's kind of an unsung hero whose importance in the narrative is quite often overlooked in modern retellings of the account because we normally just hear about her brothers. But in the Bible, though, and in Jewish tradition, Miriam is right there beside them and she actually leads the women. Uh, so when Moses leads the Israelites in a song of rejoicing at the miracle God has worked at the Sea of Reeds, sometimes translated the Red Sea, because that's what we have in the Greek, what she, she does is actually to uh, take up his voice and she leads the women in song too, reiterating what he said. She says, sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously, which is obviously what Moses has just said, uh, horse and rider he's thrown into the sea. And that's found in Exodus 15, 21. Indeed, if we look at kind of Mika 6, 4, she actually appears alongside Moses and Aaron as a heroine too. So um, it says, 
for I brought you up out of the land of Egypt uh, and I redeemed you from the house of slavery and I set before you Moses, Aaron and crucially Miriam. Miriam then is she's basically a prophetess and she tells forth God's mighty deeds and takes a lead part in Israel's salvation history. And that's significant in itself in that we see there is a kind of a woman involved in the original Exodus. And so we have a strong woman being part of Israel's salvation history. As I'm sure you will have seen with some of the other women in the series, there are some quite strong biblical women. uh, And I think she's right up there with them. And possibly even in some respects, primary in terms of understanding the typology uh, of Our Lady, which brings me on to my next point. Of course, uh, I mentioned that the name is Mary, Miriam, Maria, they're all the same thing. And I think as Christians, it takes on a new significance because she shares that name with Our Lady. You know, her role in the Bible takes on new significance because she shares that with Our Lady. So that's basically who she is. Well, it's very exciting to see that not only does she share the name of Our Lady, she obviously shares her joy and her ability to worship the Lord and to speak well of him. So can you explain a little bit more about the parallels between these two Miriams for us? So to fully understand the links, I think we have to look at the traditions kind of uh, behind the biblical account or that have sprung from the biblical account and probably be more accurate, um, which is probably where the Jewish background is going to come in a bit. In the book of Exodus, Miriam only appears in chapter 15 by name. Okay, that is, uh, in fact, where we find her denoted as a prophetess, as I've just said and also where we hear about her leading the women in the rejoicing. However, in Jewish tradition, there's a little bit more to her. Uh, You'll recall that in Moses' birth narrative, Pharaoh, the Egyptian king, issues a decree telling the Hebrew midwives to kill all male children. Uh, And then when this doesn't work because the the midwives kind of refuse to to do it, and they hide the fact that they've let them give birth by saying, well, they gave birth too quickly. Um, And so then he issues this decree to kill all the male children born to, to the Hebrew slaves. So Moshe's mother kind of somehow manages to hide him for three months and he he's saved, but he's too big to hide anymore. And so his sister puts him in the reeds where he's found by Pharaoh's daughter. His sister is kind of there when he's found and she offers to get a Hebrew woman to raise the child and Pharaoh's daughter agrees, at which point the girl fetches his own mum, who then brings him up until he's old enough to be returned to Pharaoh's daughter. This sister is not named, but we traditionally associate her with Miriam. And that's actually borne out in the Bible, too, if you know where to look for it. In Numbers 26, 59 and 1 Chronicles 6, 3, Moses, Miriam and Aaron are listed as the only children of Amram. So it actually makes perfect sense for her to be Miriam. I just think that this is something that's maybe lost in a a lot of Christian traditions. But in Judaism, there's quite a strong sense of her being the sister that saves. That's really important because Miriam is thus kind of instrumental, really, in saving us right from the beginning of the narrative. It's thanks to her quick thinking that Moses is not only allowed to live, but also because he's allowed to live, that he's then able to lead us out of Egypt. If it weren't for Miriam, then we wouldn't have Moses. If it were not for Moses, we'd still be slaves in Egypt. And we'd also be slaves to sin, because without Moshe, there's really no Yeshua, there's no Jesus. I mean, first of all, then we've got that kind of understanding that she is typological in the fact that she says uh you know she she participates in god's plan she has the ability to to kind of stand up 
uh, when necessary. And so she's kind of salvific in that sense. So I hope you can start to see some of the parallels between the two Miriams already. It's by that quick thinking and courage of the first Miriam that she's quite, she is quite bold in, in kind of asking Pharaoh's daughter what she did. And it's because of that that Moses lives. And of course, we have that courageous fiat of the second Miriam, Our Lady in the New Testament. And that's how we end up with Yeshua. Okay, so both are kind of open to God's will, despite the difficult circumstances. And in both cases, were it not for Miriam, there wouldn't actually be any salvation. So Miriam, I think, is the type of Mary right from the very start of the Exodus story. Oh, it's amazing, really, to think that she so showed such extraordinary bravery in this protection and saving of her son, because it, it would have been dangerous for her to do that. And we don't see any hint of her being fearful in allowing that to happen. So it's really very interesting to hear from you about the Jewish traditions. Is there anything else in those traditions that might help us see the connection between the two? Yeah, absolutely. I think there is. We've just seen that Miriam is involved in saving Moses, um, but actually in Jewish tradition, she's involved in his birth more directly. Now, it is a later tradition. I'm, I'm going to be honest about that. It's attributed to some Amoraic rabbis, so that's kind of late 3rd, 4th century AD. But I think it's still significant, not least because we often get things circulating a lot longer before they're actually written down. So there's a big culture of oral tradition, especially at that time. According to the Talmud, Sota 11b, I think, Miriam was actually one of the midwives who refused to kill the Hebrew children. Now, according to this tractate, there's a bit of a dispute over whether the Hebrew midwives fair instructs are mother and daughter-in-law or a mother and daughter. And the tradition that prevails is the latter, that, and then they're named as um, Jochebed and uh, Miriam. So that is to say they're named as Moses' mother and his sister, respectively. Anyone who knows the biblical text is probably thinking, well, hang on a minute. Exodus 115, those midwives are called Shipra and Pua. So how do we end up with Jochebed and Miriam? Well, the Talmud says that uh, Yochebed is called Shipra because she would prepare the Hebrews Mishaperet from the same root, uh, the children. Uh, another explanation is also given that because of her actions, the Hebrew people increased and multiplied. So Sheparu would, Verabu, uh, would be the equivalent there. With regards to Pua, uh, the name is taken to be a kind of sound that Miriam made to comfort the mother and the child as, they were, as the child was being born. So kind of like a soothing sound. And another explanation is also given at that point about her name. Miriam's role as a prophetess is attributed to even youth at this point in the tractate. Um, it says that pua is related to one of the verbs that describes speaking, so pua. And it says that she would speak through divine inspiration and say, in the future, my mother will give birth to a son who will save the Jewish people. Just as the second Miriam is a young girl, uh, a virgin who's chosen to bring salvation into the world and announces it in her Magnificat, so you could argue that a young girl, a virgin, is needed to announce the salvation of Israel in Moshe. And although she doesn't actually give birth, as a midwife, she is needed physically to bring that saviour into the world. Now, of course, types are never perfect, but both, I think, stand possessed by the Holy Spirit, Spirit of God, we might say, if we're trying to maybe keep in more Old Testament terms. One to kind of announce the saviour and his birth and the other to physically give birth. So now obviously Miriam, the mother of Yeshua or Jesus, 
is of course the greater because she gave birth as a virgin, uh, whereas the first Miriam is not the actual mother. But I still think it's possible to see in Miriam, at least the Miriam of later Jewish tradition, who's identified with Pua, a kind of type of her, because in both cases, there's a dependency on a woman of the same name to facilitate the birth of a savior in difficult circumstances. Indeed, does not Herod seek to slay the infants, you know, just like Pharaoh did. Yet in both cases, both Miriam's uh, see God's will for his people, and regardless of how things look on the surface, they persevere in bringing about God's will, and in both cases are in fact necessary for that birth of the saviour figure. So I think that tells us a lot also about the value that God places on women. They're not just passive characters in salvation history, but they play really crucial roles and parts in bringing it about right from the start. That is absolutely fascinating. And I just want to highlight actually the heroism of those midwives you mentioned, because the Bible does describing them as saving the children because they feared God. So they didn't mind disobeying the authorities, but they did not want to disobey God by killing the children. Is there anything else where we might have some light to shed on the New Testament? So yeah, I think if if we're going to be delving into these traditions, we should probably look at the evidence that they might have been known by the the New Testament writers themselves. I mean, the historical critics are probably throwing their hands up in despair at my previous comment. But there is actually another story about Miriam in the Talmud, and it's actually in the, the subsequent tractate so it's in 12 i can think of where we might actually have some evidence that the new testament writers did know some of the miriam traditions uh, and that they could actually be a lot older than people have been assuming and on that note i'm going to say you can't have jesus without joseph either Uh, another unsung hero but that's another story and there is actually in that tractate that i've just mentioned so number 12 a few well there are a few things actually that I think resonate with that side of the infancy narratives uh, that we have in the gospels that pertain to Joseph and where I think we can argue that perhaps the gospel writer was familiar with at least some of the Miriam traditions uh, to the ones we get later on in the Talmud what happens in that tractate is that Amram Moses dad when he hears uh, about the decree to kill all the Hebrew male children he orders the men to divorce their wives so that no children can even be born to be killed right so this is One way of avoiding your children being killed is, well, don't have any children. Now, at this point, Miriam pleads with him and she says that his decree is actually worse than Pharaoh's because then you don't only lose the male children, you lose your female children as well, right? So he's basically pleaded with by Miriam to relent. And he does. And the men take their wives back. It's said that he actually treats his wife as though they were newlywed uh, with all that love and exuberance that you'd have as a newly married couple. And when this happens, Miriam and Aaron dance before their mother, and interestingly, ministering angels are then said to announce for the joyful mother of children. This seems a little bit strange because she's about 138 years old to start with. Uh, (laughs) Quite a bit past childhood age, maybe. But this miracle happens and she becomes young again, perhaps like the virgin bride that she's been treated as. What it actually says is that the signs of maidenhood are kind of reborn in her. She gives birth then to Moses. Okay. Now, first of all, here, the type of Mary, you could say, perhaps, is more in Miriam's mother. Um, But what happens when Joseph hears that Mary's pregnant? Well, he wants to divorce her. All right. Uh, But she's a virgin, and the angel appears telling him to take her as his wife, because she will soon give birth to a saviour, this time the saviour from sin, right? So, you do have some parallels in the accounts between the father of the saviour, obviously, Joseph is a foster father, I'm not denying that bit 
he looks like the dad of Jesus to, to everyone looking in at that point. Now he wants to divorce his wife and so avoid a pretty tricky situation. Uh, we also have uh, an angelic intervention of sorts that announces the birth of a saviour figure in this context. And you also have a miraculous birth in both the story in the Talmud and in the New Testament. In both cases, that birth is associated with a youthfulness. People at this point, especially the historical critics, are probably saying you can't understand the New Testament in light of the later Talmud, as I've just said. But I think we should remember that there's actually kind of a recording of an oral tradition here. And those traditions, uh, as I said, have, have often been circulating for centuries before they've been written down. And those New Testament texts are Jewish texts. And so it's quite possible that they contain allusions to earlier versions of such traditions. And I think we might be able to argue that here, not least because, of course, we've got that context of Herod wanting to slay the innocents. OK, so I think there are so many parallels that we can find uh, in the gospel accounts that just suggest they may have known this. I mean, it's not definite. But they may have done. Also, I think speaking as a Hebrew Catholic again, such tales are, at least for us, kind of part of the psyche a bit. So they inform part of our understanding. And that's been willed in, in providence. And now, obviously, I'm not saying Paul Jesus is going to agree, Rabbinic Jesus are obviously going to disagree with me, and I do want to be respectful of that. But I do think that Catholics, obviously, with our background, that tradition and scripture are jointly the word of God, will kind of at least appreciate where I'm coming from with that comment. I fully accept that the typology in the second case relates more to Moses' mother, but in a way, I think that's also kind of fitting because the Miriam of old is a type, after all. Types are never exact representations, but they're rather for telling shadows and mysteries, future events that will only later be recognized. And perhaps the merging of the Miriams with Moshe's mother is intended to tell us a bit more because, of course, it is Miriam rather than her mother who helps lead us out of Egypt. And so in that conflation, maybe what's happening can actually help us see the even greater role that, that Mary has in, in the life of Jesus. Oh, so the role of Miriam does not stop with the birth. So would you like to tell us more about that? Yeah, sure. So let's get back a bit to what I was saying earlier then. So I said that the fact we find her actually first named is Exodus 15. I'll just recap what it said there. So 1520, then the prophet Miriam, Aaron's sister, took a tambourine in her hand and all the women went out after her with tambourines and with dancing. And Miriam sang to them, sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. Horse and rider he is thrown into the sea, which is a reiteration of what Moses has just said. What we have then is kind of Miriam taking a leading role in the celebration for the women of what God's just accomplished. And she basically is kind of magnifying Moses' words. And she's kind of setting the example of faith for them. I think the typology here is extremely important for understanding Mary in the New Testament, because very often we hear Protestants say that Mary is just important for the birth of Jesus and not even that. Uh, she's an incubator. God could have just chosen someone else. However, when we understand that Miriam is a, is a type of Mary, we can actually understand her role in salvation in history a lot deeper. The reason being that Miriam is named precisely when that, that role in salvation becomes important. So the emphasis on her name, on who she actually is, uh, rather than her role as a midwife or as a sister, is kind of emphasised at that point of salvation. So I think this means that kind of Miriam is not, I mean, she, she's still the one instrumental in saving Moses at the start, 
but a special attention is being drawn to that salvific role in the narrative. When do people get their names in the Bible? They normally get their names, or their new names at least, when something big is happening, when there's a change, when they're becoming part of more part of God's plan. So I think it kind of emphasizes her, her role in salvation history a little bit. I think obviously we, we can't separate at the same time that from their role at the very beginning. What happens is that neither of them we can see has a mission that stops only with the birth. The, these characters of Miriam and the Mary in the New Testament, they actually surface at very key points in the narratives uh, or in their respective narratives. And in the same way that Miriam is not just someone who brings Moses into the world, Mary's not just a birth giver either. Uh, she's right there throughout Christ's life. She goes up to the temple with him, you know, she's at the wedding feast at Cana. She's even there right to the very end when she stands at the foot of the cross. So that is, she's there at the moment of deliverance too. So when we see the two Miriams side by side, we cannot but see the importance of Mary in salvation history because we can understand that presentation in the New Testament in the light of a woman jointly leading God's people to salvation as happened at the first Exodus. So basically what I'm trying to get at is that they are both in their respective narratives co-redemptrix. Now, all that said, I, I do think it's important to note that Miriam's not quite as humble as Our Lady when it comes to her role. Uh, in Numbers 12, we hear that Moses has taken a Cushite woman to be his wife, and Miriam and Aaron, while well, they don't like this very much, and they, they speak out against him, and, and uh, they, they say one of the things they say in doing so is that, well, God has also spoken through us. Um, now, God kind of says, well, hang on a minute, and he pulls them out inside, or in front of, rather, the, the temple of meeting, and uh, he stresses that Moses is his primary prophet, saying that whilst he speaks to other prophets in a kind of dream or some kind of riddle, he speaks plainly or face-to-face, -face, I think are the words used to Moses himself. And he punishes Miriam for her pride uh, with about, I think it's seven days of leprosy and uh, she has to dwell outside the camp, etc. And that's obviously a far cry from Our Lady's humility and her favoured position with God. But nevertheless, I think when we look at the passages in Mika uh, that I quoted earlier, where we see Miriam named alongside Aaron and Moses, and we see scripture as a whole, it's still not hard to see those parallels with Miriam in the New Testament or Mary in the New Testament, in that both are instrumental still in bringing about God's salvation. Both, therefore, do actually help to, to glorify God. In fact, even in this pride of Miriam, we can perhaps see a type of Christ uh, and Mary because she's not Moses, uh, even if she's a key part of the plan in the same way that Mary is, of course, not Jesus, even though she too plays a key role in salvation history. Oh, it's great that we get to see the whole of Miriam, you know, from her singing and rejoicing before God and being a real hero in the acts that she makes, but also the fact that she is very human, like all of mm. us, and she can have this great role with God, but also falling into not being so humble at times. So she is still, well, I find her inspiring. And what do you find particularly inspiring about Miriam? Really, I find the whole account inspiring. It shows that, in fact, women are not just kind of add-ons in the divine plan. They're actually very much part of God's redemption or his plan for us. And to see that it's actually foreshadowed in the Old Testament and that that can in some way lend emphasis to the support or support the emphasis, rather, I should say, that we put on Our Lady as Catholics and her role in her salvation, I think, is actually quite, I'm not sure really what the words I'm looking for is, but maybe edifying. Um, it's quite... Uh, reassuring in, in some ways when we can find these almost direct parallels in the Old Testament. We can see that continuity between the old and the new. I mean, another thing I would say is that in Jewish tradition, the, the women 
we, we light the Shabbat candles because woman was kind of responsible for bringing darkness into the world. So Eve by her, her sin. So woman needs to be instrumental in bringing light back to the world. Now, again, when you put those two Miriams side by side, you not only get a sense of that importance of specific women in God's plan, but I think you can also get a sense of the importance of all women in salvation history. I'm trying to explain what I mean by that, but the second Miriam, Mary, is she's the ultimate role model for all women. Okay, that first Miriam's a bit imperfect, maybe a bit proud, but the second Miriam isn't. And all women as I said, kind of called to to bring that light back into the world. And as Christians, we can do that in a special way by imitating that second Miriam. And especially through the sacraments, and it's through the sacraments we can actually carry Christ kind of in us to the world. When we receive communion, he's dwelling in us. And like Mary, we become tabernacles and we take Christ the light out into the world. And and in that way, we become God bearers too. Um, So I think all women, uh, when they imitate her, can become instrumental in the salvation of the world of course, to a much lesser extent. But we basically become those Shabbat candles. We, we light up the world around us with the light of the Messiah. So that kind of role for women that is maybe typological with the first Miriam, I think comes to fruition in, the, in that second Miriam. So what I find inspiring is just that outworking of the divine plan and the, the kind of even greater role that, that's given to, to women in Christ. That was extremely inspiring. Thank you very much. And I absolutely agree with you that we are to bring Christ out into the world that sometimes people can forget that, you know, we go and receive Jesus in the Eucharist in Mass, but that is to to take him out to those around us, to bring his light into the world. We always finish by asking the listeners to go and take some time to pray and to open the Bible, because I very much hope that the Women in Scripture podcast is encouraging you all to open the Bible. We will highlight specifically that the Exodus passage, which is 15, uh, where we see Miriam named. And if you go to lines 20 to 21, you will see Miriam's role as a leader of song and dance and how we all need to sing and dance at times. So do sit and reflect and pray with that and see what the Lord says to you and how Miriam inspires you too. So thank you very, very much, Angela, for coming to speak to us. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to the Women in Scripture podcast with me, Natalie Orofici. If you would like to have some extra reading and resources, then go to the Archdiocese of Birmingham website and look at the Women in Scripture podcast page. To enjoy hearing more of the Women in Scripture podcast, then please do subscribe to the podcast on either Spotify, iTunes or SoundCloud. I hope you can join us next time. Thank you.